This evening we continue uh, our Sunday evening sermon series on the attributes of God. The name in the series is The Glorious Attributes of Our God. Next Sunday night will be our monthly prayer meeting, and then we will resume uh, this series in the second Sunday evening in June. Tonight, I want for us to consider the eternal God. But take comfort. It will not be an eternal sermon. Our passage that we'll open this evening with is Deuteronomy 33. So if you'd like to turn in God's Word there, if you're using a pew Bible, it will be on page 177. And there in the bulletin it says, Deuteronomy 33, 27. In a moment we'll read 26 through 29. These are part of Moses' final words to the tribes of Israel. And in the closing of chapter 33, he then has a word for all of Israel. Before we read God's word, let us go to him in prayer again. Would you join me in praying? Our great and eternal God, immortal, invisible King of kings and Lord of lords, we ask that through your word and through the faithful teaching of those who have studied your word for the sake of your church, that we would learn of you, that we might walk with you in spirit and in truth. We ask that you would help us to look carefully how we walk, that we would be among the wise and not the unwise. So we ask that your word would do that work in our hearts tonight and minds. We desire to be those who make the best use of our time, recognizing the evilness of our day. So we ask that your word would equip us for that. We ask that your word would help us to understand your revealed will for your people. And we need your Spirit's help tonight. So would you send your Holy Spirit now to help us to hear, to mark, digest, and apply your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 26 through 29. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs." 
Amen. And so far, God's Word to us. I know that many of you have read J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Do you remember how he opens the book? He opens with an extended quote from a sermon from a certain 20-year-old preacher. It was one of his early sermons. There's a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And in Knowing God, it opens with these words. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of safe self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently our consolation. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound, and musing on the Father, there is a quiet for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as devout musings upon the subject of the Godhead. God's eternal being is that of the highest science, the mightiest philosophy, humbling to consider God in His eternality. But as we are going through the attributes of God, it is a desire that we would close each Sunday evening this summer being refreshed in the depths of who God is and what He has revealed in His Word. Tonight, as we consider eternity, and particularly God's eternity, God is eternal. This is in the category of what I told you about last week, the incommunicable attributes. 
The communicable attributes are the ones that we come to learn and share. But to be truly eternal is something that only belongs to God. It's testified in church history, the Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, number four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It is said, we're not certain if this is the case, that when the pastors and theologians who are working on the Westminster Confession of Faith were coming to the subject of God, they were willing, almost wilting under the pressure. They saw what a daunting task it would be to write a paragraph or two about who God is and catechism questions and answers. And so they asked one of the young theologian pastors there to get up and pray for the assembly as they entered into the work. And as the story goes, he got up and he said, Oh, God, who is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And someone wrote it down and said, that would be a good catechism answer. The Belgic Confession, paragraph one, says this, there is only one God. We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is only one simple and spiritual being which we call God and that he is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. It has been through the ages that the church has affirmed that God is an eternal God. But what does that mean? Well, tonight to get at it, we'll think about the scriptural basis for God being eternal. We'll then think about how it affects the Christian life. And then we'll close with some guardrails and some comforts concerning this attribute of our great God. Now here, the testimony of Scripture concerning God's everlasting being, His eternal being, the Scriptures itself do present a challenge. Because the Bible will use the word for eternal and everlasting in a way that is not the way God is eternal. So if you think about it in Scripture, in Genesis 17, 13, it says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. There, God is promising to Abraham the birth of Isaac. And in doing so, he speaks about making a covenant with Isaac, and he uses the word everlasting. But here, the word everlasting has a beginning, it has a fulfillment, it has a purpose. Also in Deuteronomy 15, 17, if a Hebrew was to have a Hebrew servant who had paid off their debt and could be released from their servitude but decided to remain a servant in that household, then there was provisions. And listen what Deuteronomy 15, 17 says. Then you should take an all and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. So there, there's the word related to our subject tonight, forever, but it's 
has a certain period of time. It's in his force as long as a man lives. Once the servant paid his debt, he could remain as a servant for the rest of his life. And the Bible uses the word forever. The Bible will use the word eternal and everlasting to refer to things of stability and endurance. The hills in Scripture are called eternal. Deuteronomy 33, 15, again, the abundance of the everlasting hills. And then eternal and everlasting is used for things that will never have an end. So as believers, through Christ, we receive what the Bible calls eternal life. John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. But for the believer, our life had a beginning. The gift of salvation means that our life will have no end. So here we see that Scripture uses the language of eternity to speak of things that aren't strictly eternal, but as a comparative term. When we say that God is eternal, that is different. As Herman Bobbink has put it, though God is most vividly pictured as entering into time, he still transcends it. And Scripture itself does its best to describe what is incomprehensible, a being without beginning and without end. And so in Isaiah 41.4, the prophet speaks of him being the first and the last. There Isaiah says, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. And the scripture makes it clear that God existed before the world, that he existed before time itself. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The scriptures say that Psalm 102, Psalm 102, that you are the same, your years have no end. The scriptures say he is from eternity to eternity. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He inhabits eternity. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. All of these passages are pointing us to something that human language comes to the very limits to describe. It speaks of eternity, but even from a human perspective. Another example, 2 Peter 3.8, quoting Psalm 90, Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Moses and then Peter, quoting Moses, they're not giving us a formula for God's relationship to time. They are expressing that God is independent of time and not bound by time. God does it with his very name. When he calls Moses to go to Pharaoh to deliver his people, and Moses says, who should I say sent me? The Lord tells him in Exodus 3, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. Tell him, Moses, I'm the one who is, who always has been, who always will be. I am who I am. God cannot be measured by time or defined by the standards of time. He created it himself. The church father, Augustine, in his confessions, he was trying to get at this. And he has this great explanation of what time is. And I quote, what is time? If no one asks of me, I know. If I wish to explain to him who I ask, I know not. Another theologian, Herman Bobbink, says time is the duration of creaturely existence. And so when we speak of God's eternity, we revert to talking about years. And we talk about his being the beginning and the end. But this is a way that the scriptures have graciously accommodated to our understanding. This is one of the beauties of the scriptures. Is that finite, time-bound creatures, it speaks to us in terms that we can understand. We do this with our children. We do this with those who have limited capacity of the English language. We can speak true things, but we must speak it in a way that can be understood. And being in time ourselves, and not being God who possesses absolute eternity, whenever we think about his eternal being, we revert to thinking about seconds and minutes and days and weeks and months and years. So what is the definition of God's eternality? Well, Michael Horton says, if we knew exactly what eternity is, we would be eternal. In other words, God. Only the triune God is eternal. The 5th century Christian thinker, Bothephus, says, this is God's eternity. The whole simultaneous and perfect possession of boundless life. The whole and simultaneous perfect possession of boundless life. God is the source of all life and all being, and he is not trapped in time. It means that all the goodness and blessedness of God is, belongs to him. As Joel Beakey put it, God has no beginning in time, no end in time, and no succession of moments in time. These are the marks of eternity. It excludes a beginning, an end, and a succession of moments. There's really no great way to illustrate this, but I'll attempt. What is God's eternity like? Well, have you ever been somewhere and the enjoyment of the people you were with and the event that was happening and all of a sudden you just lost track of time. And there was bliss, there was joy, you weren't checking your watch, you weren't checking your phone, you weren't thinking about what's next. And to the best you could be as a person in time, you were just fully present there enjoying. Well, that's God's being. That's who he is. He doesn't 
find himself fretting about the future. He doesn't find himself regretting the past and the abundance of all life he possesses at every moment. God's relationship time, one theologian put it like this. Once again, all illustrations come up way short of what is incomprehensible. But he said it's like finishing a novel. Like having read a novel, and then as soon as you finish it, while everything in the story is fresh in your mind, you then start flipping the pages and you read a word or two and things, you, you can see the whole story at once. You can see everything that happened and everything is there right before you. Well, it's not perfect, but that's something how God understands everything, being eternal. Or, in a negative way, we could record a sports event on DVR. And then someone may spoil the ending of the game for you. But you still watch it, even though you know the final score of the game. And you go back and watch it all the way through. Well, God's experience of, of that is he doesn't go from moment to moment. He knows it all at once. He's eternal. He is outside of time. All right. How does this help us understand the Christian faith? Well, the first thing that needs to be said is that this is something that we must affirm because it is a matter related to the gospel. Because the one who came and took on flesh Part of his very suffering was the experience of time. He went from the eternal presence of his Father and the Holy Spirit to then experiencing moments and seconds and minutes and days and weeks and months and years. It's a gospel matter because the one who came to be our Savior is the eternal Son of God, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That the child would be born would be called Everlasting Father. The child that would come would serve God's people as a loving head, as their representative. That's what is getting, the, the prophet is getting that with calling him father, but he is the everlasting father, the prince of peace. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It is a gospel matter to affirm God's eternal being. Because in the mystery of the incarnation, where the human and divine nature come together in the one person in Jesus. It means that there is infinite worth to the sacrifice of the Son. Now, Terry Johnson points out then the eternity itself gives a weightiness to the Christian life. That the one we serve is the eternal God 
It gives weight to our sin. It shows us the value of salvation, the necessity and urgency of faith, the folly of ungodliness, and the vanity of worldly pursuits, and the worth of God's favor towards us. That we can know an eternal God makes everything the world has to offer pale in comparison. So it's a gospel matter. It it gives weight to the Christian life. And also it gives an urgency to our witness and evangelism. That though we are not eternal, this life is not all there is. And that we were made to then enter into a place in which we know God with life without end. As, once again, Terry Johnson has put it, our souls were made for an eternal God and our happiness is to be found nowhere else but in Him. And so as Jesus said, to know God is eternal life. That is the joy of heaven, to know the eternal God and to know Him without end. But that is the misery of hell. And so eternal destinies are at stake And so the doctrine of eternity pushes us with fervor to tell lost and dying sinners that Jesus himself in Luke 3.17 spoke of hell as a place of unquenchable fire. That Jesus in Matthew 13.42 spoke of hell as a fiery furnace in a place that will be filled with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that in Jude, it says it's the punishment of eternal fire. It affects our view of every person we come in contact with. Guardrails and comforts. First, guardrails. There are those today who would say that creation is eternal. Well, Christians have never taught that or believed that. That is not a Christian doctrine. That's not derived from Scripture. What's creeping around in theological circles today is that some would say that creation, since it's not eternal, means that God became creator. And He wasn't the always a creator. Well, the scriptures lead us, I believe, very clearly to affirm that God has always been the creator, though creation itself is not eternal. What is at stake is to say that God has changed and that he is impacted and affected by something outside of him. But I think the scripture's teaching on the divine decrees on God's will, that he has always willed that there would be a creation. He has always willed that his creation could know him and worship him and that he would redeem fallen men and women, boys and girls from that creation to know him and experience salvation, as the scriptures would call it, eternal life. So it's the first guardrail. 
Creation is not eternal, but God is the eternal creator because it was always in his will to create. The next one is that to deny or to modify and say anything about God's not being eternal, that God experiencing time related to what I just said is that you jeopardize the other attributes. Because that would mean that God hasn't always been perfect. That he could be impacted by time. That he himself could be subject to time. So that means that his glory, his sovereignty, his, his power, something could have changed about him. See, eternity, when we speak about God, it's the expression of his infinity. He is boundless. So when we say that God is omnipresent, God is boundless in terms of space. When we say that he is eternal, he is boundless concerning time. And the final guardrail is that we will never be eternal as God is, but we will have life without end. Now, there are great comforts for the Christian life. As I already told you, God is not frustrated by an unrepeatable past, an unknown future, the fact that God is eternal, it encourages to have faith in his unfailing word. But the passage we opened with tonight, it ties the believer's security to God being eternal. Did you see that in Deuteronomy 33, 27? Look back there with me. The eternal God is your dwelling place. Underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy the believer's security is wrapped up in God being eternal. There it speaks of the eternal God being our refuge. The word refuge there is like the word used for a den for animals. That as prey was to pursue animals. Or as an animal was being pursued as prey, they could run to a den and hide for safety. Well, this is the safe hiding place for men. It's God, their eternal refuge. And then it says that it is his everlasting arms. In Scripture, when it speaks about the arms of God, God is a spirit. He doesn't have arms. But what is the Scripture wanting to teach us? It's speaking of God's power to save. It's giving us an image, a metaphor, a picture to see God's power to save. Picture a, a drowning child being scooped up in the arms of a lifeguard or a parent or a loved one. And it says that God's arms are everlasting. So as we live as those between the times, because that is where we find ourselves, between Christ's first coming and his return, in a time in which there is still sin and the effects of sin, when chaos threatens, we can retreat to him, and we have an eternal God as our refuge. And when we are weak, and we cannot sustain ourselves, he is the one who will hold us up. As John Calvin has said, commenting on God's being eternal, said, if this were deeply seated in our hearts, there would no longer be any room for distrust. For if God is eternal, he never changes or decays. 
but always remains the same. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, you formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, God, establish the work of our hands. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.